We have to go back today to the beginning of the division of the kingdom between Judah and Israel to find the story of Micaiah. Uh, he is a... Uh, Judah and Israel, uh, after they departed from each other, you remember, uh, were about to go to war. Uh, Rehoboam had called together his army, ready to go up to fight against Israel and bring them back under his dominion. Uh, the Lord sent a prophet, an anonymous prophet, uh, to tell uh, Rehoboam not to do that, that this division is from the Lord and to let it stand. It was because of the wickedness of Rehoboam, that because of the wickedness of Solomon, really, and that Rehoboam then also uh, continued. Uh, but when you have two kingdoms next to each other, and they're not friendly, you'll often find them, if not at war, at least uh, on opposite sides of things that are going on. But also there are times when they face a common enemy and therefore become allies. Uh, we see that in modern times uh, as well, where natural enemies, long-time enemies, uh, sometimes come together uh, against a uh, common enemy. I think while I go, there's a word for that, and I don't remember exactly what it was. Something about uh, something makes strange bedfellows. Uh, anyway, people who don't ordinarily associate suddenly become allies, and that's what's about to happen in what we're about to, uh, to study. Uh, Ahab, is an example of that, Ahab and the king of Damascus, which is Syria, uh, against uh, Assyria, Shalmaneser III, at the Battle of Kakar in 853 B.C. Uh, that, this incident is not in the Bible, but we know that Ahab commanded 10,000 chariots and 10,000 soldiers, and uh, uh, Ahab and the, and, uh, and, and the king of Syria... Uh, uh, were uh, for a time uh, victorious in that battle against Assyria. But what's going on here, we see reflected in the Bible. Uh, and if we don't follow it chronologically, we can miss something. But uh, uh, the enemies of the uh, Israelites uh, sort of set forth the timeline of, of the Bible. Starts out in the times of David being the Philistines. And they are finally conquered and put down by David, and then there's Syria, with oftentimes Ben-Hadad, the name of the king who was against them, and then after Syria, there was Assyria, and they were the ones who literally carried away the northern kingdom into uh, exile, and the northern kingdom of Israel existed no more after that, and then Judah's enemy became Babylon, and then ultimately the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon. That's the that helps the timeline to me to keep up with who the enemy is and you know about where in the uh, history of Israel you are, are dealing. Uh, this, this battle of Karkar that I mentioned is uh, found in the Assyrian records uh, and uh, names the same kings of the Bible that the Bible names and helps to re- us to recognize that even history recognized parts of the things they did that the Bible doesn't even record. Uh, in this particular instance that we're going to be studying, Israel, whose uh, king was Ahab at that time, and Judah, whose king was Jehoshaphat, made a marriage alliance. And Jehoshaphat's predecessor uh, had an alliance with Damascus, or Syria, against Baasha, Israel. Uh, 
that's the case where uh, Judah and Israel were so much at odds with one another that uh, uh, the uh, king of Judah, before Jehoshaphat, made an alliance with a heathen nation against their brothers, in effect, uh, of, of Israel. And uh, d- during that time, we, we find uh, uh, Jehoshaphat uh, was, uh, became a reforming king. Look with me for a minute at Second Chronicles uh, chapter 17. Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. That's Jehoshaphat's place. And strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the, in the earlier days of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, uh, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and, and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord and furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherah out of Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials named several of them, and Micaiah to teach in the cities of Israel. And with them, the Levites, several names there named, and with the Levites, the priests, two of them are named, one of them being Jehoram, the same name as the king. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were among, around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 1,700 7, 1, goats. Uh, customary when a stronger nation uh, agrees to protect a smaller nation or makes an alliance with them in any way, the smaller nation uh, pays tribute, and that's what's happening here. They've been tribute to Jehoshaphat as a stronger nation and probably their protector nation, as they would uh, w- would assume. Uh, he he built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of value in Jerusalem. This was the master of the their father's houses of Judah, the, the commanders of thousands. Adah, the commander with 30,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him, Jehoham, the commander with 280,000, and next to him, Amasha, the son of Zikrach, a volunteer in the service of the Lord with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Elihu, the mighty man of valor, and only goes with several uh, people who were serving him as soldiers, and he had a great number of them in his uh, in his reign. That's right before the chapter 18 that includes the, uh, the story of, of Micaiah. And uh, uh, it's also in time right before uh, 2 Kings, 1 Kings 22. Uh, 
In 2 Chronicles 18.8, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. And that's what sets the stage for the story that we're about to read. What usually happens when two cities or countries come together and make an alliance, they certify that alliance by a marriage of the two king's houses. And in this case, uh, Ahab uh, I keep losing my place. Uh, in, in this place, Jehoshaphat, although we saw what a good king he was and how faithful to God he was generally, he took Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, as a wife for his son Jehoram. That one sentence obviously sets up uh, some difficulties ahead uh, because uh, the uh, uh, daughter of Jezebel is a whole lot like Jezebel herself and leads the children of Israel, uh, leads the uh, Judah into the same uh, godless kind of activity. Likely explains Jehoshaphat's role in our story as well. Athaliah is as ruthless as her mother and influenced Jehoram, her, uh, her husband. Second Chronicles 21 tells that story. Uh, she had six brothers, and she killed all six of them, so they would not become king in her place. Uh, she walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and that means in the ways of the two uh, golden calves at Dan and at Bethel. And, uh, but the Bible says God would not destroy his house because of the promise made to David. And Jehoram, therefore, although he was wicked and although God brought some uh, punishment against him, uh, he did not remove him and his son from king. And again, that was because of the promise he had made to David that one of his uh, descendants would sit on the thrones of the people of God for, uh, uh, forever. And that's, of course, ultimately fulfilled when Christ uh, sits on the throne of spiritual Israel and is our king to this day. Second Kings 15, 37 to 38. In those days, the Lord began to send Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of uh, Israel, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. So that's where we are as we look to the story of, of Micaiah. I want to take a sort of a sideline detour here because it's in the same uh, period of time and it's an interesting uh, incident. Uh, it's Isaiah 7:14. That uh, uh, very language should uh, bring something to your mind. That, of course, is the uh, prophecy in Isaiah that uh, uh, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, we just read the fact that Ahaz, his son, reigned at the time we were reading. And in Isaiah 7:14, we see that Ahaz is king. There's quite a conflict in the brotherhood. You may have even heard some of it about uh, this prophecy of the virgin. And you remember that there was another controversy when the uh, uh, Revised Standard Version came up. And in the Old Testament, instead of saying a virgin shall conceive, simply said a young woman shall conceive. 
and many people thought that meant that the Russia won. Many people thought that that was still the uh, uh, the liberals taking away uh, the virgin birth. But let's look at the uh, context of uh, uh, of Isaiah 14 and, and and hear it as we read it together. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. Well, that's too far back. We can go closer to 14 than that to start. Uh, now, that's chapter 14, chapter 7. All right. Uh, all right, here we are. In the days of Ahaz, that, the last thing we read before Micaiah came into being was that Ahaz, the king, uh, took uh, the, the, the reign in, uh, in, in Judah. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the sixth son of Remaliah of Israel, uh, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. That's the sentence we just read in the other place that we were looking. But could not mount and attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were, they were frightened. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shiraz Jashub, one of the favorite uh, trivial questions sometimes asked is what was Isaiah's son name? And, and Shirab Jashub is the answer to that. And it means something like uh, the, 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 the battle is raged. And uh, anyway, the, the name of it is, is given when it tells what it, what it means. Uh, and the Lord said to, uh, to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the w- w- washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, and do not fear. Ahaz is scared to death because of this uh, uh, alliance that's coming against him. Do not let your heart be faint because of the two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That's what he calls the king of Israel and the king of Syria as they come up against him two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Remaliah because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you saying let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabel as king in the midst of it thus says the Lord God it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 60 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces, so it will no longer be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in Judah, you will not be, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Then the Lord spoke again unto Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. And let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. He's talking to Ahaz. In the time of these two kings coming against him, he's scared to death. And God is trying to assure him that he doesn't need to be afraid. 
And the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days have not been since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, uh, the, the king of Assyria. So what he's promising is a time of peace and a time when those two kings bothering him will not bother him anymore. And basically it's the length of time that it takes for a virgin or a young woman to conceive, bring forth a child, and for that child to come to the point of uh, uh, knowing good and evil. And by that time, these two kings will be gone. That's the sign that God promised Ahaz. It's fairly obvious that this original uh, prophecy here has a, a time in its own time that is being, uh, in which is being fulfilled. Uh, somebody objects to that and says, you mean there were two virgin births? Well, no, they weren't. Because the, the verb in the land, the, the, the noun in uh, Isaiah, where it talks about the woman being conceived, is not the normal word for virgin. It's the word for a young woman. This passage is again quoted in the Septuagint, or translated in the Septuagint, and quoted from the Septuagint in the New Testament. And the word in the New Testament it's translated young woman in uh, uh, the Old Testament is actually Bethulah, the word that means specifically virgin in the New Testament. And so the virgin birth is specifically prophesied in Matthew's use of this passage. But obviously the passage in its context had a different sign in mind that was relevant to the king to whom he was giving it and telling him that he doesn't need to worry about the two kings that are against him. That's not unusual. Uh, the Bible has a great number of instances where prophecies have a double meaning, one specifically in the time that it was given and another in a later time. Uh, in our brotherhood, rather interestingly, uh, this has become a point of controversy. Uh, I won't mention any names, but uh, a school, the Bellevue School of Preaching in uh, uh, Pensacola, Florida, uh, had a group of people who maintained very stoutly that if you did not believe that uh, Isaiah 7.14 was a straight line prophecy, first and foremost and only, of the virgin birth of Christ, then you were a, whatever, a liberal, a modernist, a crossroads, or whatever they wanted to call you, uh, because they felt like that was, that was heresy. And yet if you look at the context, it's obviously clear that what Isaiah originally said to Ahab abounded to a, uh, a sign for Ahaz that the two kings that he feared were not going to be able to bother him and would shortly be done away with. Uh, and the king, the story then that uh, the prophecy of Jesus being born of a virgin, although it is a prophecy, and Matthew, by inspiration, makes it clear that it is a virgin, uh, it's, it's a, a secondary meaning of the original prophecy which was given to, uh, to Ahaz. Uh, uh, as I said, the school of preaching at uh, Bellevue had a number of people in it that just ad adamantly said, if you believe this is just a secondary prophecy, uh, you, you just, you, you're just an, a, a heretic. Well, uh, they were having a, uh, 
lectureship on prophecies about Christ. And they invited Brother Rex Turner, Sr., to come and speak and assigned him the prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, Isaiah 7:14. I knew, because I've heard him talk about it, and I knew some of his students, that Brother uh, Turner understood what we've just said, that uh, the prophecy had an original meaning to Ahaz, and was originally telling him that he didn't have to worry about the two kings that were coming against him. Uh, and that uh, the prophecy in the New Testament of the virgin birth was a prophecy, but a secondary prophecy. And I also knew that he believed that and that he was going to a place where that was considered ultimate heresy. So I wasn't able to go. I was at Kosciuszko at the time, and I cocked my ear down that way to, to hear the explosion if it ever came, and it didn't ever come. But I got curious enough. They were already, I'd already on their list, so I didn't let them know it was me, but I had somebody who was a friend of mine write and ask them for a uh, for, for a DVD, a CD, CD is what it was, for a CD of Brother Turner's uh, speech. And they sent it to me, and I listened to it. His assignment was the prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. He quoted Isaiah 7:14, gave an absolutely wonderful lesson from the rest of the Bible on the virgin birth of Christ, and never mentioned Isaiah 7:14 again. Uh, I mentioned that to him one time. I said, I thought that was pretty uh, uh, stu astute of you uh, to not get involved in a controversy and a pretty slick way to get by it. And he just laughed. Uh, he understood what I was talking about. But I say all that so that you will be educated. And, and, and it's important that we know the truth of whatever there is. And I don't think you can miss the truth of the Isaiah 7 that when it's talking to Ahaz, it's giving him a sign of his own time that those two kings he doesn't need to worry about. And then we have the secondary prophecy. And that's not unusual at all. There are many such secondary prophecies. Some of them are a lot more uh, troublesome in our mind than that one. Uh, you remember that Hosea uh, had a quotation, Out of Egypt have I called my son, talking specifically about when God called uh, uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt uh, to become uh, a sacred nation to him and to go to the promised land. And the next words after that, I, 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 uh, uh, out of Egypt have I called my son. He talks about how they went astray and went after after other gods. Well, that's obviously not talking about the Messiah. But uh, Matthew, nevertheless, quotes that as a prophecy. Uh, out of Egypt have I called my son. And... Uh, uh, quotes that as a prophecy of the fact that uh, uh, Joseph and Mary would go into Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod and then would be called out of Egypt back to Nazareth. Uh, those kinds of uh, secondary prophecies are quite common in the New Testament. But so also are very clear, straight line, literal prophecies. Uh, Micah said specifically, that the Son of God, when he comes, will be born in Bethlehem. And that's a straight line, clear prophecy uh, and fulfillment of it. So I think if you want to prove the uh, uh, reliability and inspiration of the New Testament with prophecy, you use the straight line 
prophecies rather than the uh, uh, others. But the others are also used in Scripture. Uh, see your hand back there. Uh, yes, sir. And that's exactly true. Uh, what's happening here is they're taking a passage out of its context. The context is clear that it relates to Ahab and the two kings that are against him and the fact that he doesn't have to worry about them. Uh, and if you ignore the context, then you can make a case against anybody who uh, says the prophecy of Isaiah about the virgin birth means anything other than the virgin birth. But uh, uh, you're right that very often we do that kind of thing and, and build a case on a particular passage taken out of context and then uh, uh, well, do away with, uh, fight, uh, badmouth anybody who doesn't believe that and, 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 and cause division that doesn't need, to be, doesn't need to be called. We need to be careful to read the passages of Scripture that we read and to see them in, in the context in which they appear. All right, let's look then at 1 Kings 22. You can follow along in 2 Chronicles 18 if you want to. They say just about the same thing. Uh, I was impressed not long ago, no, no matter how long you preach or how many times you read Scripture, uh, you can always learn something new. Uh, I had read many, many times the passage in 1 Timothy where the Apostle Paul sent word to him to uh, take heed to the reading of Scripture and other things that he wanted him to listen about. And I'd read over that and, and assumed he meant the kind of reading of Scripture I do when I'm studying for a class like this or otherwise. But I got reminded not long ago that that word reading of Scripture means reading Scripture aloud. And it gives several other passages where that is used to show that that's really its meaning. One of them is when uh, Philip comes down from uh, Samaria to preach to the Ethiopian eunuch on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the Bible says, as he drew near to the chariot, he heard the eunuch reading Isaiah 7.14. Well, that had to be reading aloud in order for him to hear it before he even got to the chariot. And that's an illustration of the fact that that word, reading of Scripture, means in its original context, reading Scripture aloud. And I think it's a shame, really, that we neglect the public reading of Scripture uh, to the degree that some of us do. And it's just a good thing to read Scripture aloud as other people follow the same Scripture, and it's following a commandment, actually, that Paul gave to Timothy, take heed to the public reading of Scripture. We're going to read a chapter, and I hope we can understand it and, and, and follow along.
For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel and the king of Israel and to his servants. And do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, and my people are as your people, and my horses as your horses. Usually, Judah and Israel were an enemies, but now Syria has taken one of the cities that belonged to them, and they conspired together to go against Syria to capture Ramoth Gilead back. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first of the word of the Lord, which is a good thing to do. We find throughout the Bible that uh, kings often want to inquire of the Lord whether it's the thing God wants them to do to go against, in battle against a particular uh, other enemy. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together. He had about 400 men. And he said to them, this is the king of Israel, shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not another prophet of the Lord to whom we may inquire? 400 were not enough. (laughs) Uh, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. Uh, Micaiah is a uh, form, actually, of the word Micah. Uh, and there are people who've tried to make the case that Micah and Micaiah are the same, but the Bible puts them apart by about a century or two, so they're obviously not the same person, but they bear basically the same name. Uh, Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance to the gate of Samaria. Uh, Several instances like that remind us that the kings and the judges and others who were going to decide cases for the people often sat at the gates of uh, of the cities. And that's what's happening here. Both the king of Israel and the king of Judah are sitting at the gates of Samaria, the capital of of, of Israel. Uh, And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Shemnah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with this iron you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said, Behold, the word of the prophets with one more accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, he said, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Gilead to battle, and, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, and there's nothing in the text that says what his word was like or what he sounded like, but we'll see it's fairly obvious that the way he spoke made it obvious to the king that he was not telling the truth, that he was being sarcastic. Uh, to follow along with the other prophets. He answered him, Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. 
But the king said to him, Now how many times shall I make you swear that you speak but nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And he said, I, and that's as Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountain as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master, let each return to his home in peace. Uh, that's some language that is familiar. Uh, Jesus quoted that part. I would have used the same language when he talked about he saw uh, the people of God as a sheep without shepherd, uh, desiring to be the shepherd, but they're not following him. And uh, uh, he used that same terminology. Uh, in other instances where kings are talking about going to battle or are not going to battle, uh, this same kind of language is used to say, you're going to be defeated because you're the shepherd of these people and they won't have a shepherd anymore after this, uh, this battle. So the king of Israel said to the Jehoshaphat, did I, not tell you, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him at his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him and you shall succeed go out and do so now therefore behold the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets and the Lord has declared disaster for you then Zedekiah the son of Shema came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek slapped him and said how did the spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you and Micaiah said behold you will see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself and the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison, and, and feed him meager rations of bread and water, until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you prophets. <coughs> uh, a lying spirit. Would the Lord put a lying spirit in a prophet's tongue? Well, go to the New Testament. And you remember in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, the Lord talked about a, a man of sin, a man of lawlessness, who would, would come. A lot of controversy about who that is, and I won't go into that right now, but it is obviously a person who will be able to deceive lots of people. And... Uh, those who are deceived by him, the Lord says of them that because they love not the truth, I will send to them a, a spirit of deception, a, uh, a, a lying, uh, deceiving thing that I will send and they will believe because they love not the truth. Uh, those who love the truth would not be deceived by it, but those who did not love the truth would be ready to be deceived by the a lying spirit that, that, this, that the Lord would send through this man of lawlessness or man of sin. Very similar to the lying spirit that the Lord would send to uh, the uh, prophets who were not prophets of God, but who prophesied what he knew the kings who, who ruled them 
wanted to hear. And uh, they put him in prison. Uh, I've wondered, perhaps you wonder too as you look, uh, how long did Micaiah stay in prison? Uh, he said, uh, keep him there until I return in peace. And Micaiah said, you're not going to return in peace. If you do, I'm not, I'm not a prophet of the Lord. And of course, he did not return in peace. Nothing was ever said about whether anybody else let Micaiah out of prison or not. And of course, the day may come when you or I may be put in prison for the Lord, and there may not be anybody to let us out. I don't know whether that's true of Micaiah or not, but I do know that uh, there were a group of men in the days of Paul who were determined to, to capture him and assassinate him. And there were a group of them, and they made a vow that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Well, the Lord intervened, and they weren't able to kill Paul. And I've often wondered how long they stayed hungry uh, and, and what happened to that vow. The Bible doesn't say. But anyway, we do not know what ultimately happened to Micah. This is the last word. This is the only chapter other than Second Chronicles 18 which has the same information that uh, Micaiah is mentioned in. But uh, he is a colorful prophet. Zedekiah, the false prophet, had iron horns put on and actually pushed people around with them and said, that's the way that you, the king of Israel and Judah, will push the kings of Syria. And Micaiah said, no, it won't be that way. And if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. Well, they did not return in peace, so obviously the Lord had spoken by him. In Deuteronomy 18, remember, the way to tell whether a prophet is a true prophet or not, if the words that he says to you come to pass, then he's a true prophet. If they don't come to pass, then I've not spoken by him. Now, there's one other test of a true prophet. That's in Deuteronomy 13. And there he says, if you have a prophet and he says something's going to come to pass, and it does come to pass, but he sends you to worship after another god, do not believe him because he'll be a false prophet. So two standards to judge a false prophet or a false teacher. One would be uh, if he's a prophet, do his prophecies come true? And the other would be even if his prophecy does come true, does he teach you something other than you have known to be truth otherwise? God had clearly shown himself to be the God of heaven and the God of the Israelites. And uh, uh, they shouldn't doubt that. And even if a prophet seems to be valid by the fact that some of his words come true, if he tells you to go after another god, he's not a true prophet, he's a false prophet, and don't you believe him. Uh, so Micaiah was a true prophet. He may still be in jail to this day, but uh, actually God would bless him, I'm sure, for his faithfulness. Any comment or word otherwise? All right, this quarter is over. And uh, next quarter, uh, somebody else, well, actually, I think uh, the plans are that uh, Steve Wages will teach this quarter. Uh, Brother Bill and I are going to take a vacation uh, for a quarter, and then after this quarter, Brother Bill will take up again, and then I will. But I'm sure you'll enjoy Steve Wages. I've heard him speak a number of times, never been disappointed. So I look forward to hearing him and seeing you in this class uh, in the future.